Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Edwin Dorsey is founder of The Bear Cave, a short-focused newsletter that investigates and uncovers bad businesses. Edwin's passion for investing began in third grade, and when his grandmother funded an e-trade account for him while still in elementary school, he was hooked. Whilst at Stanford, Dorsey shone a spotlight on the nefarious Care.com, having instigated an international investigation that culminated with a Wall Street Journal front page, a C-suite overhaul, and IAC's ultimate acquisition of Care.com in early 2020. Edwin relives that story and many more like it, including the equally awe-inspiring tale of root insurance's unsavory practices and subsequent demise. We discuss how to identify these bad businesses and what red flags investors can look out for, before concluding by talking Twitter and Edwin's super fandom of both Dorsey and the company's monetization potential. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Edwin. How are things uh, your side? How are things in New York? Everything's great. I'm loving life. Uh, I got to say, it's nice being a 23-year-old, free, self-employed with a lot of free time. So uh, I'm having a great time. Yeah, no complaints there. All right, well, let's get stuck into a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. So broad question, but bear with me. Is there one thing all bad businesses, in inverted commas, have in common, do you think? So Hayden, I thought a lot about this. And there is one thing uh, a lot of bad businesses at least have in common, especially the ones I look at. And bad businesses don't delight their customers. Bad businesses uh, usually don't have happy customers. And I've gone through all the companies I've written up in the barricade and all but one had a really either unhappy customer base, neutral customer base or customer base that like has to use them, but doesn't want to use them. And just because you have unhappy customers doesn't necessarily mean you will be a bad business, but I, I think it's a good pond to fish in if you're looking to uh, find bad businesses, unhappy customers, um, very dissatisfied customers. Because in the long run, the customer's interest and the company's interest are aligned. In the short run, you can get misalignment because it takes time for people to churn. It takes time for people to find alternatives or stickiness. Uh, but in the long run, the customer's interest and the company's interest are aligned. So bad businesses have unhappy customers. Yeah, great. Okay, perfect. Well, we'll get into some of the other characteristics some of these businesses might exhibit as well further into the podcast. But let's start by briefly sort of giving, I guess, the listeners a bit of context and digging into your background. So your your passion for investing, I read, started earlier than most. I read that if someone had asked you in third grade what you wanted to be, you'd have said an investor. So firstly, how, how Maybe that's that? 100% true. I was obsessed with the stock market from a really young age. It might have even been second grade when I, when I started getting into it. But I was really interested in the stock market when I was young, not necessarily the short selling side that came later in life. But, but I was just always attracted to the stock market. I was really interested in math. I love learning. Uh, and the stock market's a good place to explore some curiosity. 
Yeah, and why do you think that is? I mean, were you around finance from an early age? Does it run in the family? Uh, no, my dad's a neurologist. My mom was a lawyer. Uh, not, I don't really have many people in finance in my family. Uh, I, I think it, it was a little bit just being good at math and you get to play around with numbers. Like before that, I like baseball cards and basketball cards and that sort of thing. So you get the math numbers aspect. You get to learn a ton. Uh, it's very important and relevant to the world. Uh, so, so I think that's what kind of uh, approached me and it, it made me interested initially. And then, you know, I'd listened to interviews with Warren Buffett, Bill Ackman, and just like spent hours listening to their talks on YouTube. And I, I just found it fascinating. So that, that, that's what pulled me in. And then something that gave me an early start that really took it to the next level is my grandmother, this was in third or fourth grade, put real money in an E-Trade account and just gave me the username and password. And when you get to play around with real money from a young age, you know, the stakes are really raised. And I just ran off from there. Yeah, fantastic. I was going to ask you about that. So I think that was in, still in elementary school, right? I mean, can you remember your first trade? Like how much money was it? Can you give us a bit, a bit of detail on that? I think it was, it, this wasn't large amounts of money. It wasn't my money. It was my grandmother's money. Maybe it was like a thousand or $2,000 in total. And the very first day that I, I bought three stocks, the at the same time when I made my first trade. I bought McDonald's, I bought Apple, and I bought this uh, healthcare company called Seppi, which ended up getting acquired by Danaher, I believe. And uh, I like to joke, if I just bought those three stocks and never did anything, I, I would have done a lot better than, you know, if I spent all this time <laughs> looking at companies and trading. And um, But, but I, those were the three companies I bought when I started. Yeah, great. And then, Moving, I say later on in life, I mean, I think you're still a teenager at this stage. I think you write, you uh, then start writing for Seeking Alpha, obviously the stock market focused publication everyone will be aware of in the US and most probably of our listeners in the UK as well. How, how did that come about? And can you remember your first article? So Seeking Alpha, you know, retail-based website with like millions of viewers uh, where people just can share ideas on stocks they're interested in. And because I was trying to learn about the stock market, I was reading like all the articles posted on there. Uh, I don't know if I remember my very first article. It was probably some microcap long stuff. But the first articles I got attention for and I got traction with on Seeking Alpha is I was writing about a pharmaceutical company called Malincroft. And this is, I think, my senior year in high school. And they had a drug called Actar, and it was used to treat infantile spasms, so like seizures in babies. And the, they raised the price of this drug from $40 a vial in 2001 to $40,000 a vial in like 2018. And, you know, Wall Street loves it because all the charts are up and to the right. And you're like, you can raise it even more. Or you could prescribe it even more. But there's a lot of big red flags with this company. For example, of like the top 10 prescribers of this drug, like, seven had been arrested or gone to jail or had like some very like negative media story about them. And when you just see that, you're like, huh, so something isn't adding up here. Uh, so when I started highlighting that company, what's cool is when you write about stuff online on Seeking Alpha, smart people will reach out to you if you're putting out good content. And that's kind of how I got my first introductions to some hedge funds is people would read what I write anonymously on Seeking Alpha reach out. And then I'd be like, Hey, I'm like an 18 year old, really interested in this stuff. Do you want to like hire me or talk to me? Um, so, so that's how Seeking Alpha really helped me early on. 
Yeah, great. And we might be jumping forward a little bit, but I think it's probably a good juncture to move on to the newsletter. Why why start the Bear Cave? Was there a eureka moment, perhaps? So the Bear Cave kind of started like the month before the pandemic. So this is my senior year in college. I'd interned on and off for a hedge fund all four years of college, a short only hedge fund, but they were in the process of winding down. So I couldn't go work for them. I was talking to a lot of New York City hedge funds and there's a bunch of places I liked, but I couldn't find one I truly loved. And I'm just not a suit and tie type of guy. I like my freedom. I I wouldn't like, you know, having a boss. I'd like having a lot of free time and a lot of independence. So I just was reading articles about people writing newsletters and making a lot of money. And I thought this would be cool. I knew from my experience with Seeking Alpha and with Care.com that when you write online, it's like the supercharged network tool. So I thought, I'm just going to start this blog, The Bear Cave, talk about stuff going on in the short world. Maybe I'll end up charging for to make money. But, you know, even if not, I'll just get some followers and I can use it as a stepping stone to get a really good job. Um, So I just started this newsletter February 2020. So this is right before the pandemic hits. I'm a senior in college. The pandemic comes in. And so now I have a ton of free time, right? Because everybody goes home from the pandemic. And I just invested all in this newsletter to recap new activist shorts. I sometimes do my own little investigation and uh, it, it just grew from there. But the Eureka moment was just not finding a job I loved and seeing this opportunity partially created by the pandemic to put some time in the, into this. Yeah, great. And if you could, I guess, compare it to the other, because there's, I mean, there's a lot, you kind of alluded to it there. There's a lot of stock market focused publications out there at the moment. What's different about yours? What's the key differentiation with your content? I I would say two things. One, the bear cave is focused on exposing bad companies. So this is corporate misconduct type stuff. I'll read a lot of lawsuits, file a lot of FOIA requests, read a lot of disclaimers, uh, focus a lot on a company's relationship with its customers. I'm trying to find the bad companies out there. I don't think there's so many news that are focused on that part of the market. Two is I'd really say these aren't investment recommendations. Tons of hedge funds read the newsletter, a lot of law firms read the newsletter, some journalists and regulators read the newsletter, but it's primarily hedge funds. But I don't ever use a price target. There's never, it's very qualitative. It's not so quantitative. It would disappoint me if somebody read my newsletter and then right away was like, let me short this. I hope people read it and they think, huh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That exposes one or two new angles about a company. Now I'm going to use this article as a stepping stone to do my own research. I like to joke this, this article, if you subscribe to the Bear Cave, you'll be able to get off the beaten path ideas and start on like inning four of your research process instead of starting from zero. But it's not like, you know, a lot of places are just saying, oh, the price target's 10 and it's going to fall 70% in three months. That's totally not my vibe. Um, And I think that's what differentiates it. Really a focus on the qualitative aspects. It's a lot more like journalism than a typical financial publication. Yeah, great. Um, I've read some of it. I've signed up to the free one and I read your uh, analysis of root insurance we'll get into in a minute. Um, and that de- that editorial, I guess, slant definitely comes through. Um, so with, with that in mind, that idea that I guess you're not publishing investment recommendations, are you invested in any, any of the companies or do you have open shorts against any of the companies that you cover? 
So Hayden, uh, one thing that makes me unique is I don't bet against any of the companies I write about. Now, a lot of the companies I've written about have fallen 80, 90%. And uh, I think if you bet against them, you've probably done well in aggregate. But I, I don't buy puts on the companies I write about. I don't short the companies I write about. I do occasionally go long companies and then write about them, for example. And I'll clearly disclose that when I do that. You know, Twitter is the social media platform is my largest long by far. And I've written positively about them in my newsletter a bit. But no, I don't bet against the companies I write about. The real reason for that is uh, I, I think that can hurt your independence. People are going to say, why do I pay $44 a month for this if he's trading it on his own and he's going to make money from it that way? Uh, and it creates this weird incentive where then you want to move the stock price because you'll make money from that. Uh, and then you, you're probably going to be trading around it that day, which I don't think is good. And if you want to be credible, you know, you can't have that like, you know, pull towards exaggerating things. If you want to be credible, you kind of just need to be financially independent and make your money solely through paid subscriptions from readers because readers want that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a really important distinction to have, actually. And you mentioned there that you're, you, you are one of the few publications, I suppose, trying to fill the information void in this space. Why do you think that void exists in the first instance? Why does the void exist in short sell research? Well, I, I think the market for short biased work and exposing corporate misconduct is a lot smaller than uh, long biased work because there just aren't a ton of short sellers out there or short focused people. Oftentimes, if you're criticizing companies, depending on how you do it, that can come with a lot of legal risk. And, and that's just a huge overhead cost if you want to start an organization. So especially if you're going to be talking about things publicly in an open way, one lawsuit can cost an incredible amount of money, even if it's a frivolous lawsuit, that that's kind of a deterrent from people starting up. I'd also say, you know, now with Substack, it's very easy to start an email newsletter. Anybody can start an online publication for free. And Substack, the platform only takes a 10% cut once you turn on paid subscriptions. Without Substack, which is a new technology that's like, become popular over the last two years, I couldn't have done this because then it becomes a lot more complicated where you need to set up your own websites. It's like logistically a mess. So by lowering the barriers to entry and the upfront costs with new technology, um, th that's part of the reason now this void is being filled, where in the past, you know, the barriers to entry are high, the litigation risk is high, the market isn't that huge. Most people who are good at this type of stuff are just going to be joining a hedge fund and earning a ton of money at a hedge fund. Why would you like leave that to try to make, uh, you know, money in the newsletter business? Uh, th those are all reasons why I think there's been a lot of void. That, that are now being filled with email newsletters. And I, I'm wildly bullish on the email newsletter industry, especially for professional services. And I think you're going to see a lot more niche publications like mine come in and fill in other voids. It's not just applicable to the short selling world. Yeah, no, completely agree on that. Okay, so this space then, I guess, has been plagued by descriptions and characterizations of it as a dark art, a shady profiteering from other companies' misfortune. Where do you think we are in terms of those connotations? Do you think that's shifting at all, or do you think it's negatively perceived by the wider market? 
I think traditionally short sellers don't get a, you know, get a great reputation for the reasons you mentioned. They make money when others don't. They have a financial incentive to potentially spread false rumors, although a lot more often your criticism is correct than not. Uh, I think over over time, people have slowly become more accepting of short sellers. Short sellers are often the first whistleblowers with frauds. And I think at least regulators are starting to accept that. You'll see a lot of now like SEC enforcement actions seem to follow Hindenburg Research's reports a lot. So I'm pretty sure they pay close attention to him. It seems like, at least in the US, regulators are viewing short sellers more favorably. Um, I, I think the issue you might see with some short sellers is disclosure. There might be a push for more disclosure around trading activities and who's trading on what information when. But overall, I, I think we're seeing a positive shift in the view of short sellers. I think that'll continue, especially in the US. I think US regulators, as long as short sellers are properly disclosing their activities when they publish stuff, are, are going to be accepted for that. Um, you know, I, the other kind of danger now is anybody with a blog and a Twitter following can start putting out content, which means people can do it anonymously. And usually, at least in the past, you know, you'd need to put out three or four good reports before people give you credibility and start trading on your stuff. Now, a little fear I have is somebody could come out anonymously, put out a completely frivolous nonsense piece on a company, move the stock 10%, cover, make a ton of money, and then it turns out the piece isn't true. And if somebody does that anonymously, that could give short sellers a bad rap. But overall, I think short sellers are are getting a better reputation over time. And that's a trend that'll continue. Yeah, great. Okay, I completely see your point. So I guess with that in mind, and obviously with most market participants going long, why short sell? What do you like about it? Why did you choose that way to trade markets? So I kind of followed my early mentors, Hayden. So the very first two people I met in college were two of the best short sellers in the world. One is Mark Cajodes, who previously uh, uh, previously ran a hedge fund called Rocker Partners, which was like a billion dollar short bias fund. And my other early mentor was Jim Carruthers, who ran a hedge fund called Sophos, which was at the time the second largest short uh, only fund in the US. And when you have two kind of greats in the short selling world, then you kind of deviate in that direction. If two of my early mentors were private equity titans, I might have gone into private equity. If two of my early mentors were really into microcaps, I might have gone into microcaps. But I just got, uh, just through lucky introductions, two outstanding mentors in the short seller world. So I, I was pushed into short selling. Um, um, or that 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 type of research. The other thing that kind of makes short selling unique is you could have a real impact on the world. Uh, at least that's what I saw with my care.com piece is like, if you put out something that's insightful, that exposes a company doing wrong, the stock price might fall and people might start paying attention to the problems at the company. The company might change the way it operates. You might get journalists involved to highlight future issues. You might get regulators involved to cause change. Short sellers really have a chance by sharing stuff online to change uh, how companies operate. And that got me really interested too. So the combination of really good early mentors in the short space and the ability to like create some real world impact, uh, that's what got me interested in the short side of the market rather than, you know, the traditional long side. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess I think this is a direct quote from yourself in an article that I read prior to the interview. You know, it's part investing and part being a social activist. And I guess it's that that latter part that not all market participants are necessarily that crazy about. You know, it's, it's not something that drives them necessarily, but it's obviously something that drives you. Why do you think that is? Maybe, you know, it's this young idealism. You want to see the world be a better place. Uh, uh, I, I, you get really like just even small injustices towards other people tend to really, really, really irritate me. Um, Warren Buffett always said if he wasn't in finance, he would be a journalism in journalism. I, I think that's true for me as well. I think that's true for a lot of investors because it's all about uh, seeking facts and seeking the truth. So I, I don't know why these injustices in the world bother me so much, but I'm glad I can try to address it with the newsletter a bit. Um, maybe it's just being young and wanting to see the world be a better place. <laughs> Well, I mean, regardless of the motivation, I think we can certainly agree it's a good thing. Um, I think you've touched on it a couple of times. Was Care.com your first short or was that the one that kind of first gained most notoriety? And if so, how did that come about? Hayden, Care.com is my favorite story to tell. And it wasn't my first short. This was starting uh, my freshman, the summer after my freshman year of college. But it's the one that got the most attention. It's the one that had the biggest impact and it's the most fun story to tell. So Care.com was the largest babysitting platform in the U.S. at the time. It was publicly traded, you know, millions of users. And I had a friend who was using the website to like find nanny jobs. And she's like, you know, the website's kind of shady. You should check them out. And this is summer after freshman year. So I, I just pull up Pacer where you could search for lawsuits. And I see hey, this company had a lot of lawsuits against them for safety issues. And I looked at local news reporting on care.com. And there was like a lot of weird stories about like people with the rest records getting jobs through care.com and then hurting kids. And it's just like, how is this happening if they claim to be vetting their babysitters? So I decide to start looking into care.com myself. And the first thing I do is I say, you know, they claim to be running background checks on everyone. So I'm going to try to sign up as Harvey Weinstein. So I made a fake email address, a fake profile. I used Harvey Weinstein's profile, made up a social security number, made up all this information. And at the end, you like submit an application and you, you consent to a background check. And I'm like, there's no way they, this gets approved. And they're like, we'll take 48 hours to let you know whether or not you're approved. And 48 hours later, I get an email. Hello, Harvey, you've been approved to be a babysitter on care.com. And I documented this whole process. I took screenshots and I'm like, they're clearly not running the background checks they claim to be doing. So I wrote up this little article. I shared it on Twitter, which is the way, you know, I distribute most of my information and it just goes semi-viral. The stock falls, a board member resigns, some journalists start looking at it and the company like loses their mind. They send like a legal letter to my house. The co-founder of the company called Stanford to complain about me and care.com had a lot of ties to Stanford. So the Stanford's Dean of Students met with me for an hour in like this windowless conference room and is like, you broke our Wi-Fi policy in doing this. You need to take this article down. You're going to face an ethics investigation. 
all this nonsense. And I just, I refuse to do that. And, you know, just the company's response itself got me more interested. So I sent Freedom of Information Act requests for consumer complaints to every state, all 50 US states for consumer complaints against care.com. And I got like thousands of pages of overbilling other safety issues. I published a second article on care.com. And then I sent that to like every senator and like 200 journalists. Then that care.com, the second care.com article got like 50,000 views. It got a lot more attention. And to make a long story a little shorter, the Wall Street Journal got interested. I talked to them a lot. And then nine months later, they had a front page story in the Wall Street Journal saying like care.com has been linked to eight deaths caused by babysitters with prior criminal histories. And then the company was done. The CEO, CFO, and general counsel all resigned. The Stanford dean that investigated me also resigned. Uh, the company ended up falling like 60% and then it was sold to IAC. And IAC has actually made a lot of good safety changes with care.com. So it's a story I like to tell. One, because the company was corrupt and tried to target me. Two, it's, it's a good example of, you know, how just somebody writing something online can like, you know, make a little bit of a positive impact. The Wall Street Journal criticizing them had a hundred times more of an impact than I did. But I think it's still the spirit of public criticism um, of companies can change things. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a fantastic story and it encapsulates nicely why you might want to short sell a company and why you might want to investigate bad companies, as we kind of mentioned at the start of the interview. Um, I mean, it's also kind of interesting, that anecdote about hearing from one of your friends who was babysitting or trying to get work via the company. And that's how you originally found out about care.com. How how often would you say that 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 kind of, uh, yeah, sort of anecdotal sort of stumbling across bad companies happens? Like, is that is that a, a scalable way to actually build out opportunities and investments in this space? Or do you have to put a more kind of quantitative strategy to it? So Hayden, I'm like 0% quantitative. I if, if I'm really bored and desperate late at night, I might be running stock screens just to find companies. Or when I was really young, I'd just go like A through Z Googling companies. But 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 now, especially once you start getting more attention from the newsletter and Twitter, I'll probably have like one or two people reach out to me every day, either through Twitter DMs or emails, kind of mentioning companies that are shady, just like a paragraph, like, hey, I think you should know this. You should look into this company. Um, I, I read a lot of SEC comment letters, which is informal correspondence between the SEC and publicly traded companies. Sometimes those have good nuggets, which will make me interested in a company. And I use Twitter like two hours plus a day. And anytime somebody tweets something that just piques my interest, I'll, I'll get interested. So, you know, the thing that got me interested in root insurance, Hayden, is that somebody tweeted a, a screenshot of a bunch of consumer complaints against this insurance company saying they were being screwed over. And I'm like, customers being screwed over, that's a bad thing. I should look into it. Uh, so, so those are kind of the ways I come up with things. Sometimes it's word of mouth, but more often it's people DM, Twitter DMing me, uh, emailing me, seeing something on Twitter, seeing something in an SEC comment letter. And then I have like this working list of like 50 shady companies that uh, I know if I dug around in, I probably find more wrong with them. Yeah, great. Okay, well, that seems like a good point then to really flesh out and dig into how you identify your short position. So firstly, how 
do you decide a company is worthy of further investigation? So you mentioned there that you might get loads of ideas from followers, people within your community. What do you need to see within those ideas to kind of pique your interest? So for me, it's just bouncing a lot around a lot in the first uh, hour of research. First, I'll just see, you know, is this company U.S. listed in the one to $10 billion market cap range? That's pro- probably what I prefer first. Is it an off the beaten path idea? If the borrow rate's 30% or if the short interest is already huge, uh, I'm not so interested in it. I don't want to be like the hundredth person to write about Tesla or Carvana. I don't think I could add much value there. But if it's an off the beaten path, one to $10 billion U.S. listed company, not too heavily shorted, that, that that's a little interesting to me. Then it needs to uh, be understandable. So anything really complex with healthcare, drug development, a big bank, I could never really understand that fully. So, so then I nix that. Uh, once it passes those screens, I probably want to watch a little bit uh, of the CEO speaking, listen to a CEO interview for 15 minutes and see, is this person really passionate about the product? Or do they have their heart and soul invested in the business? Or are they just kind of um, a babysitter for the business looking to make money and maybe be a good custodian, but they're not like a mom for the business. They don't have their heart and soul invested in it. You know, Are they a missionary or a mercy? scenario. And I try to figure that out. And if they seem to be more money focused, then that that piques my interest. I might quickly look to see if there's been any executive or board resignations. If a CFO has resigned, like, you know, after less than a two-year tenure, that'll get me interested. And I use insider score for that. Usually I'll pull up Pacer and look at lawsuits. I'll pull up the 10K and start looking at disclosures. And then the most important thing is I'll just really spend a lot of time looking for consumer reviews, starting with Twitter, with the Better Business Bureau, online, Glassdoor, But what I can do that takes it to the next level is I'll file a Freedom of Information Act request with the regulator or multiple regulators for consumer complaints against a company. Um, And then that'll get me a treasure trove of documents, which can um, reveal whether a company is acting ethically or not. Yeah, great. Okay, well, that really nicely sort of outlines how you might start to get interested in a particular company and then you might dig further through the detail that you've just shared with us there. Let's apply that then to root insurance, which you briefly alluded to a moment ago. What was the specific red flag that drew you to that company in the first instance? So somebody tweeted like a consumer complaint about root insurance. This is shortly after the IPO where just somebody was saying, hey, I got my root insurance. I've been a perfect driver and they just raised my rate like 30%. And then there was a bunch of replies to that tweet being like, yeah, I have root insurance too and they're awful. And I saw it just was a recent IPO and it had like a huge, like $6 billion market cap. And I think it was somewhat shorted, but it wasn't a hugely consensus short at the time. And I'm like, this is just interesting. And I just see, you know, it uses a lot of buzzwords, AI, you know, uh, telematics to track drivers. And, you know, I couldn't fully understand how they were like, underwriting car insurance better. So that's what got me interested in Root at the start. And then Hayden, I I guess what really like piqued my interest with Root is, like I said, one of the early things I'll do is I'll send a FOIA request uh, to a state regulator for consumer complaints. And with Root, I sent a FOIA request, I think 
to the Texas like Department of Insurance for all consumer complaints against Root in the last three years. And they came back with a lot. And it was just the same story over and over again, where, hey, I got a policy through Root Insurance. I've been a perfect driver, but they like, they uh, charged me $30 a month the first six months, and then they raised it to $50 a month, even though we're in a pandemic. And every other car insurance company in the pandemic either froze rates or like lowered rates and rebated an amount to drive. Root was like the only one raising rates. And it's just like, wait, this is awful. And everyone says they have a perfect driving record. So it's not like you're just doing this in isolated instances. It's and, you know, you always are saying that when they raise rates, it's because the weather is worse in the area or because the cost of repairs are going up or because your car is becoming more dangerous. It's just some nonsense excuse. And then, you know, you think logically, OK, if they're raising rates a lot, then their churn must be pretty bad, which it was. But what Root also did is they raised rates excessively every six months, even on perfect drivers, even on a, in the pandemic. But they also made it very difficult to cancel. Uh, so, the, you know, you, there's no phone number. There's no mailing address. You can't do it on a website. You need to do it through the app. You know, spend two hours on the phone. If you're disabled, it's going to be incredibly difficult to do it. And they, they just made it very, very difficult to cancel. And that, to me, is a huge red flag there because that's something that isn't going to show up in the numbers right away. It's a qualitative aspect that Wall Street can completely be missing. So Wall Street will look at it and you say, hey, if you go by cohorts, their cohorts become much, much more profitable year over year. And then what they're kind of missing is, well, no, you're just raising prices on like good drivers who are sophisticated and realize they're being screwed over and they're just pissed, but the company makes it difficult to cancel. So it's going to take a little longer to see all this churn come out and for people to actually switch. And that's exactly what happened. And the stock ended up falling 80% from the time I wrote about it. But it's just sad because you can see all the, you get to see the human aspect of it when you're investigating these companies. For example, uh, Here's a complaint a person wrote to the Kentucky Attorney General about Root. And this is a this is an excerpt of a complaint that I included in my newsletter. Um, and she wrote, I canceled my auto insurance on November 19, 2019. The premium of $80 was still deducted from my bank account. I called to find out what the problem was and to verify the cancellation was entered as requested. I was told, yes, I'd be refunded the $80. I repeated this every week, but I never received a refund. Each time the cancellation was rejected, I'm on disability and this may mean nothing to them, but it pays a bill for me. I'm 59 and of sound mind, but I'm being treated like a fool. And the Kentucky Attorney General, according to the documents I got, forwarded that, forwarded that complaint to Root and said like, hey, can you respond to this? And it's really cool seeing the correspondence between companies and the state attorney generals. Because sometimes companies will actually have a really good response and be like, no, this person isn't being truthful. We have correspondence here. But this time the company is just like, you know, we reviewed the matter and we realized errors were made. We refunded this person $80 and we're working to improve our like feedback system. And it's just like, okay, guys, like we see what's going on. You're, you're screwing people over on a mass scale and you just got caught. Um, so, so it's upsetting. Uh, and that's what was happening with Root. And I'm kind of glad the market's woken up and the stock's down a ton. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show.
Yeah, well, I can completely understand why you might feel that way. I mean, it was fascinating reading your your piece, which is available actually on Substack. You can read that one for free, and it's it's obviously an example of the sort of content you can get with the uh, with the paid subscription. But um, it was interesting to me that from, I guess, an investment perspective, that it was very clear that they were raising rates, as you described earlier, at the height of a pandemic. But they were telling investors that they'd actually lowered their base rates in Texas, I believe, which is one of their key markets. I mean, how difficult can it be to actually uncover, I guess, real truth from an investment perspective? I would say it isn't really easy to figure out uh, that this was happening because most people just rely on management statements and uh, assume management is honest. And it's not like you can like figure that out through two minutes of Googling. It took me sending a FOIA request to the Texas State Attorney General and Texas Department of Insurance and then waiting two weeks to get it back and like having management really just like on the record being wrong about this. Um, I, I think going to primary documents is kind of your one key and your one savior in figuring this out. If management's lying on a conference call, you're not going to figure it out by reading the investor presentation or reading other material on the website, but you might figure it out by reading an SEC filing or a lawsuit filed on PACER or going to the government to get documents through the Freedom of Information Act. So the one way you can really Really contradict government, contradict uh, management, and figure out whether or not they're being truthful is by going directly to the primary documents, which is what I really focus on doing, which is what I think the Freedom of Information Act is great at, uh, and which is what I advise everyone else to do is try to get to the primary document as much as possible, because that, that, that's kind of your savior in trying to figure out if management's being truthful or not. Otherwise, you're relying on somebody who might not be 100% there. The other thing you can do that's good is you can look at people's uh, past track records. So there was a company called Triteris that went public through a SPAC and I think got a billion dollar valuation when it started trading. But if you looked at the management team, it's like their executive vice president had been involved in 10 penny stocks that always went to zero. And the, like the CEO had like a $2 million federal tax lien on him from a year ago. And it's just like, and his like past companies had been accused of being Ponzi schemes. And you're like, do you think this one is going to turn out to be any better? And of course it hasn't. Um, so those are the two things you can really do. You can go to the primary documents to get facts and data directly from that, or you can try to figure out management's past track record, track record to establish credibility. Yeah, great. Okay. Re- yeah, two really good tips. So in Ruth's case then, I mean, you mentioned the churn earlier. I read that nearly two out of three consumers leave the company after just one year. I mean, that complete lack of customer retention to me was somewhat surprising. I mean, I suppose that might be relatively common amongst the businesses you investigate, though. I mean, how, how fair is that? I don't know if it's always uh, that, that simple. Uh, generally, the businesses I look at have pretty high churn, I'd imagine. I'm not sure all companies disclose it very easily. You know, it's like, what's the churn for a payday lender that's, you know, only originating a loan once every five years to someone. It's it's less clear. I would say more dissatisfied customers and then in certain types of businesses that'll that'll show up in churn, you know. And sometimes it's like I recently wrote about Playtica, which is this really big China-backed uh, mobile app developer who like that makes like that has like 10 popular games, mostly like casino themed games. And you, they could they could lie with numbers and say, oh, look, our like average churn metrics are low, 
But what happens is they acquire a popular game that has like low churn metrics and you probably acquire a lot of users who have a lot of goodwill. You start excessively monetizing it, putting in too many ads, putting too much stuff behind paywalls. And right away, you get users who are getting pissed off and forming petitions and saying like, Playtika is ruining our game. But, but that doesn't show up in churn right away. You have a certain amount of goodwill. Churn is kind of the last thing. You know, it'll get shown up like churn is the end game after like, you know, you, you, you've you ruined your reputation, and destroyed all the goodwill. But there's a lot of things that happen before you see higher churn numbers. You see custom companies make it more difficult to cancel. You see, you know, the customer wait lines go up on the telephone. You see all these other things. That's and, you know, if you can spot it before it shows up in the once it's in the numbers, Wall Street will likely have priced it in. But if you can spot it up before it's in the numbers, before it gets reflected in the churn, then, you know, you're adding a lot of value. And that's kind of what I try to do with the bear cave and finding these customer complaints, really focusing on the customer experience uh, and trying to add value that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess Root's business model and, and kind of the, the negativity of that in terms of how they treat their customers was exacerbated by the pandemic where they chose to raise rates and really, I guess, capitalize on what was a pretty poor situation all around for their consumers. How prevalent was that throughout the pandemic? It seems quite a fertile environment for companies to exhibit similar practices along the same lines as route. Would that be fair? And are there any other examples that stick out to you? Yeah. One example of a company that was kind of abusive during the pandemic was the Joint Chiropractic. So they're a franchisor of chiropractic clinics, uh, roughly a $1 billion market cap. They have like up 500% over the last two years or something like that. And you sign up and you pay $50 a month to get five chiropractic adjustments a month. But a lot of these chiropractic clinics shut down in the early stages of the pandemic. Yet you continue to be billed. And if you wanted to cancel your subscription to get back adjustments because you weren't going to be going in to get back adjustments because of the pandemic, you couldn't do it over the phone. You couldn't do it online. You need to go in person to the clinic. And if all the clinics in your area were shut down, you aren't allowed to cancel your subscription. You can only pause it and then it'll restart in three months and you need to remember to cancel it then. It's just kind of evil. Um, you know, at some point it needs to go into the land of unfair and deceptive business practices and an attorney general needs to step in. But uh, the, the joint was one of these businesses. And when you see that, it's like if the market was valuing this business at 10 times earnings and knew they were scummy, then that's fine. But if the market's pricing it to perfection and letting it trade at like 40 times franchise fee revenue and pricing it like an outstanding operator, even though it's using a lot of these aggressive, unsustainable and sleazy tactics, then that kind of piques my interest because huh, you've got a company that's making it nearly impossible to cancel. If you do cancel, you need to provide 30 days notice. So they continue to bill you. You're automatically signed up for two months. So if you if you get a subscription to the joint and then you want to cancel the next day, you get billed for two months, not one. It's just like all these little things that when you add them up, it's just, this is probably not a high quality business if they're doing these type of things, but the market's pricing them like that. So, so the joint was one of the other ones that was bad. And then the other thing you saw a lot is publicly traded companies taking PPP loans. So a company that I wrote about most recently, Redwire Space, it went public through a SPAC. 
uh, at like a $600 million valuation. They're really just a collection of five space companies they acquired for only $150 million. And of the seven companies they acquired for $150 million, and of the seven companies they acquired, four took PPP loans. Most were the loans were taken out before they were acquired, but they were forgiven after. And it's like, how is this massive private equity firm that's taking a company public through a SPAC benefiting $4 million by getting PPP loan forgiveness? It's like, this doesn't seem, you know, at least in the spirit of the program. Um, so that was the other thing you saw with a lot of companies benefiting from the pandemic. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can certainly see why that might have uh, stuck out. Um, okay, well, let's round off the story with Root then. You, I mean, the shares are down over, I think, 85% when I looked yesterday below their all-time high and trade around $3 or just over $3. How do you assess the outcome there? You know, Can you chalk that one up as a win, in inverted commas? Do you need to see the company kind of go out of business to feel kind of fully satisfied with your position against that firm? Like, How, how do you reflect on your investigation into Root? Uh, I would just chalk it up to a win. Uh, I put out a thread of general short selling advice that uh, are just tactics I'd follow. And one of them was once the stock goes below $4 cover, you know, that, that that's more art than science, but it's just once a company has fallen so much, it's just f- focus on the new, it, it's now a consensus thing. People understand the problems. It could be squeezed. They put out a press release that spikes the stock up hundred percent. Well, once it's down a ton, just focus on, you know, the greener pastures and focus on other things. So, so I, I'm kind of proud that the, that, you know, I criticized them and they fell a lot. The other thing I'm proud of is at the time, there was a lot of big name shareholders in it. I think Citron Research and Andrew's a friend, Citron Research put out a piece saying, you know, we're long this and it's the best long of 2021. And the reason it's the best long of 2021 is all these other smart investors are invested in Root. And, uh, you know, it ended up being the worst long of 2021, despite having a lot of smart investors. Um, which is maybe one thing I'll talk on briefly. It really frustrates me when you see people say, oh, I like it. And, you know, these three smart people are in it. One, a lot of times, I I think, especially with the New York City hedge funds, is it's box shorts. So it'll show up as a long, but they're actually short it. And I've, like, I've seen firsthand people say, like, this hedge fund is long it, and that's like a positive thing. And I know in the back of my mind, that's absolutely a box short, and they're almost certainly short it. Um, And it just shows up as a long, and now you're using it as a positive. But to go to your original question, yeah, I do consider Root to rent win. And it's even a better win because there's a lot of people on the other side who who seemed who seemed really smart and thought they had it, but didn't. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Okay, well, let's move on quickly then to your strategy um, because I want to uh, get your thoughts on some current picks as well before we finish. But in terms of strategy, and I don't think we need to spend too long on this, but, you know, how concentrated would your current portfolio be? I mean, you don't need to even talk specific names, but I can't imagine you're holding loads of positions. So can you just talk to us about the composition of your current portfolio? Hayden, uh, I'm an 80-20 investor. I got (laughs) 80% of my money in Twitter stock and 20% in Bitcoin. And those are like the only two things I own. So that might sound crazy to some people, 
but uh, that that's kind of my lifestyle. I make money from the newsletters and every week I just buy more Twitter and more Bitcoin. Um, uh, and I, I think a lot of people might roll their eyes or be like, that's too aggressive, but particularly Twitter is interesting to me. I, I don't know, like a little bit of random microcaps, like a smidge of Apple, a smidge of Autonomo, but I'm extremely, extremely concentrated. I think when you're 23 and you're really young and you got a long runway and you're like earning a lot of money relative to what you spend, it's like it's perfectly fine to be insanely concentrated. I, I, I personally don't see anything wrong with like investing a large portion of your net worth in like one or two companies if you believe they're going to be around for a hundred years. And uh, if they're not like just some heavily levered cyclical thing that could go bust, mm. but the, you know, 80% Twitter, 20% Bitcoin. And uh, that's what I own. Yeah. Great. I mean, I haven't planned to ask this, but why are you so bullish on, on Twitter? So there's a number of reasons. Historically, People have viewed Twitter. It's just a social media app that makes money when people spend time on it and view ads. And that had kind of been right. Um, and it lacked focus. And it's, you know, it just by Facebook means it's better. And recently, Twitter has announced a lot of new initiatives, partly around monetization, partly around engagement that I think are just going to turbocharge the platform. Uh, and I see this firsthand because I'm an online content creator. I built my business on the backs of Twitter. My news that are over half my new paid subscribers came directly from Twitter and indirectly, probably that number is closer to 60 or 70%. And every new newsletter author, if you want to build a content business, if you want to build a newsletter business, Twitter is essential. So they're the essential distribution platform for almost anyone in the creator economy. That's one. Two, their new products, I think, are going to be massive hits in the long run, particularly around the creator economy. So super follows, which is their, you know, you can pay five, ten dollars a month to get exclusive content from people. That is going to be a big success in the long run. Um, but right now it isn't really reflected in the numbers. It's only reflected in the cost, not in the revenue because they're beta testing it with about 200 people. But I just know because I interact with a lot of people kind of through my Substack, the email newsletter and on Twitter, Twitter is the best way for any content creator to stay close with their audience. So anybody in the content creation business who uses Twitter as a distribution platform, you want to monetize on the face of the distribution platform. So naturally there's going to be a shift with content creators to monetize through Twitter, just because by removing the friction right now, I say, Hey, you visit my Twitter, you click on the Substack link, then you enter your credit card info and Substack. That's fine. But if I can just have you pay in one click directly on Twitter to get my newsletter or just to get other content from me through private audio spaces or DMs or private tweets, that is a, such a much better way of monetizing because it reduces that friction and it's just on the face of the distribution platform. Uh, so I think Twitter is going to be doing really well with the creator economy type stuff, newsletters, and particularly super follows. But right now, again, that's super small. is isn't reflected in the revenues or profits. I think Spaces, which is their audio chat room, massive, massive opportunity. It's an awesome product. It's like the best way to host audio events. It's how I launch all my new newsletters and like how I like kind of build excitement about product launches or new ideas is I host a Twitter space and I've used Clubhouse before and I get 60 people in a room and Twitter spaces, you can get a thousand or 2000 people listening to me interview someone else. And it's like, this is kind of incredible. And 
you know, right now Twitter doesn't make any money from it, but very soon, you know, I would pay to promote a space if I'm going to be talking about my newsletter to get more people in it. You can see like all these different ways to monetize through spaces, but, but, but right now, again, it's just a really cool product. It's a cost item. It's not a, a revenue item. Twitter's experimenting a little bit with e-commerce with blue, they get your credit card info so they can bill you $3 a month for more premium features. Basically Twitter has this like awesome community of heavily engaged users. I think there's a lot of people who just love, love, love Twitter. They've just done such a bad job of monetizing over time, but you've just seen the shift over the last nine months of a focus on monetization, a lot of really good new products. Again, doesn't get reflected in the numbers. So Wall Street's all like, oh, stock-based compensation's way up. They're hiring more people. The financials are upside down, whatever. But you know, I, I'm just extremely confident that the new features they're rolling out are going to be great for the long run. This is an unpopular opinion, but I love Jack Dorsey as a CEO. He's very much the anti-Zuckerberg. He is hyper-focused on customer experience, hyper-focused on doing the right thing. and doesn't care at all um, about making that extra dollar in the short run. And you can talk to ex-Twitter employees and they'd say that. The new CEO, who is like a close with Jack Dorsey, I think is going to keep that culture in line. When I think of Twitter, I just know this is going to be something that's relevant five to 10 years from now. It's going to be popular five to 10 years from now. It's a company that's like got a lot of talented employees, a great culture, a lot of incredibly new products. The one thing they just haven't figured out is monetization yet, but I, that, that, that's what their new products are going to address and just give them two years and the, the market's going to be looking at it completely differently. Yeah, I completely see that. And I was going to ask about Dorsey because how can how can you talk about Twitter now and not not ask about Dorsey? But that's interesting. You're still bullish uh, with him having left the business. Well, yeah, and people like it just it just silly a lot of the stuff that goes on when people talk about Jack Dorsey. It's like he's not a full time CEO. He didn't care about Twitter. People would say, well, that's like not true. If you look at Jack Dorsey's publicly disclosed schedule. You'd work at Twitter from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., which is five hours a day, and you'd only be at Square 2 to 6 p.m., which is four hours. So he spends more time, he spent more time at Twitter than at Square. And people would say, oh, he's got the majority of his net worth in Square stock and less of it in Twitter stock. So he doesn't care about Twitter as much. Well, that's only because Square, his other company, went up 20x since IPO. If, if his other company was a failure, he'd be 100% in Twitter. And would, would you say that's better then? And like, it just, just the, the amount of silliness that people like get in their heads when they talk about Jack Dorsey. I don't, I've personally never fully understood the criticism. Yes, like he's t-shirt wearing, he's the, he doesn't speak the lingo of Wall Street. He doesn't focus on like the quarterly earnings calls. But if you look at the like product development and long-term vision, I think he's A++. When he came in in 2015, Twitter was a mess. I think 2016 is when he took over as CEO. Twitter was a mess. The number of tweets was declining every day. User growth had been flat. Now user growth is like 20% year over year. People are posting more. It's much healthier than Facebook because Twitter made all the investments that Facebook didn't make. Twitter invested a ton in content moderation internally when Facebook didn't. They outsourced it all. Facebook, uh, Twitter invested a lot in creating a healthy platform. Twitter banned political ad spending way before Facebook was even thinking about it. 
Twitter has very clear terms of service where Facebook is getting criticized because they didn't even translate their terms of service into all the languages they op- all the countries they operate in. Um, it's just kind of night and day. The one thing you don't see with Twitter is like it reflected in the short term financial results. I'm really bullish also on the new CEO, 37 years old. Twitter now has the youngest CEO in the S&P 500. Uh, you, you know, you've seen a lot where you, when you get a new CEO come in, you know, more focused on monetization, these stocks can just go parabolic. Uh, This is like a little silly or maybe trite to say, but you can think a little bit with Microsoft. Once Satya Nadella came in, he was able to unleash all these projects within Microsoft that like had kind of stalled and just stock goes up 10x. I think you could see that a little with Prague now at Twitter, where he's going to say, you know, let me get a few points on the board and just just turbocharge these initiatives and really accelerate the monetization here. Let me roll out ads within spaces sooner than maybe Jack Dorsey would have. Um, I'm just extremely bullish. I, I just, I talk to people on Wall Street and people who are short the stock and it just, you don't, you don't get it. People say, well, why, why buy Twitter when you can buy Facebook if their earnings are growing at the same pace? Well, Facebook is like already pulled its monetization levers and maybe there's like one or two more levers it can pull where Twitter is like so under monetized. It's insane, 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 insane how under monetized it is. And Twitter's like one thirtieth the size of Facebook and Twitter, I'm like a hundred percent confident is going to be relevant 20 years from now where you can't say that about Facebook or Instagram or even Snapchat. Um, I just, I just, I'm just a big fan. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that definitely came across to be honest, we could have run a whole different podcast on, on just Twitter. And actually, I mean, you mentioned spaces there, Opto runs, uh, frequent spaces, uh, with kind of industry thought leaders that we collaborate with and we tend to interview them and we've seen massive engagement, uh, via, via that channel as well. So a spaces to talk Twitter with yourself further down the line could be something that we can look at. All right. Well, I think let's finish then on the short side. That's where we started the interview. So let's finish there. Um, And we've talked about your portfolio. We've talked about companies that you've investigated in the past, like Root and Care.com. But are there any companies that you can share with us that you're currently investigating, that you're currently looking into? Maybe there's a favorite one that, that sticks in your mind. You know, I can't really because all those companies are like, going to be stuff that I I write about. And I don't want to, you know, Medical Properties Trust, which is this big hospital REIT, I'm very skeptical of. I've written about them in the past and just, you know, every month somebody will send me more negative stuff on them. So highly skeptical of Medical Properties Trust, MPW, uh, 10, $12 billion market cap. And they like, you know, do sale leaseback transactions with hospitals. Uh, That's kind of one that I'm uh, really skeptical of. Uh, you know, and I, I've also always been skeptical of the Brookfield Asset Management Complex and specifically Brookfield Infrastructure Partners. I think they're very opaque and might be playing games. So in terms of large caps, I'm not going to write about Medical Properties Trust and Brookfield Infrastructure Partners are too um, skeptical of. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, looking ahead, I, I completely take your point about not being specific. So I wonder if we look ahead then into 2022, is there a particular sector or industry that you expect to offer up a few or a lot of short opportunities versus other sectors and industries, perhaps? 
SPACs, you know, are always the most fertile hunting mm. ground and just like the aggregate returns for SPACs are terrible. And there's uh, just, just SPACs in general, especially if there's no pipe, especially if it's like a three-way merger, those are always, I think, going to be a really fertile hunting ground. Uh, for me, a fertile hunting ground, there's a, a lot of fintech companies, companies that are using a lot of buzzword, usually if a company's recently formed, um, but, but, but if, if I was just to do one thing generally, it would be SPACs. Yeah, great. No, completely take your point. Okay, final question before we move on to our quick fire question round. Will 2022, in your opinion, be a good year for short sellers? Is the environment conducive to short selling in the short to medium term, do you think? It's going to be a terrible year for short sellers unless they subscribe to the barricade. Then they're going to be doing okay. <laughs> nice message to end on. Okay, quick fire question round, and this will take one to two minutes. It's a more generic list of questions we ask all of our guests. So just a lighthearted way to end the episode and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. First question, what is the top mistake investors make, do you think? Focus too much on the numbers and not enough on the customer relationships. Yeah, nice. Question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? Uh, I read the Wall Street Journal two hours a day. I love the Financial Times and I read a lot of other sub stacks. One great one is called Doomberg. They give a lot of uh, uh, insightful stuff. Yeah, great. Nice tip. Question three, what is the most memorable moment from your career today, if you could pick just one? Uh, I cold emailed Bill Ackman and he responded right away and he met with me for an hour and I got to talk to him and ask him a bunch of questions. That was pretty fun. Wow. And, and that's something you bring up right at the end of the interview. We're going to need another, <laughs> we're gonna need another conversation that. to speak about that. Um, penultimate question then. A top tip for your younger self. So if, if you could go back in time, would you give yourself a tip? I have a few. You you get one mind and one body. So, you know, take care of your body, exercise a lot, take care of your mind. Don't drink too much, drink a lot of water, uh, you know, have initiative, reaching out to people, cold reaching out is important and people like it, even if they say no. Um, and focus on being happy because if you're happier, you get a longer life expectancy and that'll make you like much richer anyways. So, you know, focus a lot on being happy. Yeah, definitely. Nice message. Okay, final question then. And this is sort of the opto question. We aim to speak to the individual investors and companies outperforming benchmark returns. So in your opinion, what is an investor's best source of alpha, if you had to narrow it down to one thing? If there's a big disparity between the numbers and what Wall Street sees and what's like actually happening with the company, then you can get crazy alpha. Like if the numbers show one thing, but that the company's showing something else, if the if the numbers like Twitter are showing costs go up, revenues down, everything's upside down, but you see the business doing really well with a lot of cool new initiatives, then I think you can see a lot of outperformance in the long run. Yeah, fantastic. Definitely digging into that disparity makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, that was our final question. So that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Edwin. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Hayden, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the Opto session. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. 
If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.